I invite you to turn your Bible this morning to 2 Peter chapter 1. I want to read beginning in verse 1 and I'll read down through verse 11, but our consideration this morning will be verses 5 through 11. This is God's word. Simon Peter, a bondservant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have received a faith of the same kind as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord, seeing that his divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the true knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and excellence. For by these he has granted to us his precious and magnificent promises, so that by them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world by lust. Now for this very reason also applying all diligence in your faith supply moral excellence, and in your moral excellence knowledge, and in your knowledge self-control, and in your self-control perseverance, and in your perseverance godliness, and in your godliness brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness love. For if these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. For he who lacks these qualities is blind or short-sighted, having forgotten his purification from his former sins. Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make certain about his calling and choosing you, For as long as you practice these things, you will never stumble. For in this way, the entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ will abundantly be supplied to you. Amen. This is God's word. Let's pray once more and ask the Holy Spirit to minister to us. God, your word is clear. We're so thankful for the English translations we have. So thankful that you gave us a book that is ordered and makes sense, even if there's areas we have questions. By and large, it's so clear. And yet we know that our hearts and our minds can essentially be hardened or confused And so not for a minute do we think that we can benefit from your word apart from your own spirit. So spirit who originally gave this word to Peter and intended it all those 2,000 years ago for your people, including us here this morning. Use your word, gracious spirit of God. Tear down every thought raised up against the knowledge of God. Humble the proud and lift up the humble. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Peter is writing to Christians. He is writing to those in verse 1 who have received a faith of the same kind as ours. These are men and women of various backgrounds all around the Roman Empire, um, Jew and Gentile, who once were dead and lost in their sins, far from God, headed for an eternity of judgment. 
And someone came to them and told them about Jesus, that Jesus is the Son of God and that Jesus lived a life of obedience that none of us have lived, and that on the cross he actually, in his death, took upon himself the wrath and the judgment of God due us in our sins so that our sins could be counted as having been dealt with in him and that we could be forgiven, cleansed, washed, go from being enemies of God, brought to be sons and daughters, reconciled to God, adopted, brought into his kingdom. This is the glorious gospel, the good news. And Peter is writing to men and women who have received that good news, who have professed faith in Jesus Christ. And notice Peter's attitude again in verse 1. He's, he's humble by this point. This is no longer the bragging, big-mouthed Peter. This is, this is a humble Peter who have received a faith like ours. He's an apostle, yes, but he's also, notice, a slave of Jesus Christ, a servant. But the word is literally slave. Peter understands himself as, as being owned by Jesus. Peter's plans, Peter's life are no longer his own. And even the fact that his life is about to be forfeit, he understands that that is because of his life being lived for the Lord Jesus Christ. And his assumption is that the men and women to whom he's writing, the same thing is true, that they too are servants, slaves of the Lord Jesus Christ. But as I said at the beginning of this time, Peter's greatly concerned that he sees in his latter days an attitude among professing Christians of carelessness towards moral issues, towards what's displeasing to God, an increasing idea that Paul was also concerned about, that somehow the grace of God in Jesus, the forgiveness of sin, somehow gives us license to sin. Perish the thought. And so he's writing, deeply concerned, but longing for these people. Notice his pastoral heart. He passes along in verse 2, the blessing, grace, and peace be multiplied to you. He's, he's saying, verse 12, I'll be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them. He knows the believers to whom he's writing already know the things, but he's, he's concerned that they not forget them. He's concerned that they not be duped by flashy, false teachers, that they hold to the old ways, the old ways which are simply God's ways, Christ's ways. I don't mean old ways in terms of external Appearances, I mean the old paths of godliness, of holiness. The path of holiness and godliness has been the same for God's people from Adam and Eve all the way on. We've had more clarity about the promise of God. Our hope now is not just in the vague promise of God, but in Jesus Christ. But God's ways are God's ways because God does not change. And so Peter is writing to call us to godliness To have a life that is lived to God, unto God. Not to use Jesus as like an app that we tack on to our life, that we tap into when things are going rough or we need a little bit of encouragement. But literally that our lives, in all of their normality and abnormality, all of the ordinariness of our days, I mean, we're the kind of people that go shopping at different grocery stores and weed our gardens or mow the lawn, all the different jobs we have. God knows that. And he 
believes, and rather he calls us to live in the midst of all that unto him. And it's not impossible. He gives us by his gospel and by his spirit and by his word the ability to live unto him. So this is a call to godliness. And in fact, the grace of God in Christ demands we live godly lives. It's a strong claim. The grace of God in Jesus, which has been poured out on us, demands that we live holy lives, pleasing to God. And the grace of God supplies all we need to live godly lives. That was the wonderful comfort of verse 3 and verse 4, that that in Jesus, everything we need, in knowing Jesus, everything we need to live a life pleasing to God is, is supplied to us. That is such a relief that, that Peter and the Holy Spirit doesn't start with the call to godliness up front and basically say, hey, why don't you get your act together and somehow tap into some power that you have? No, no, no. He starts with, hey, I want you to know up front, brothers and sisters, God in Jesus has supplied you with everything, verse 3, that you need for life and godliness. So God's not demanding godliness. He's not demanding holiness and then asking you somehow to figure it out. He's given you everything you need. So grace of God demands holiness in Christ and the grace of God supplies everything we need for godliness in Christ. We are to live unto God with love and reverence, seeking to please God, listen, to please God in everything we say and everything we do. You mean everything? Yeah, like everything. And God knows you. He made you. He made your body. He made, he made work. He made marriage. He made all. I mean, that's, that's his design. And he wants you in the midst of all that to think say and do what's pleasing to him. Basically, in the words of Romans 12, verse 1, what Paul says, to offer up our bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to God. The entirety of our life, not just when we come together in church and worship and sing. Yes, that is the high point, but the extent of our, the whole extent of our lives. We live for him. As Peter said in 1 Peter 2, verse 24, that we who have died to sin might live to righteousness. Is that your understanding of the gospel? Is that not only is the good news that you are set free from condemnation of sin, but set free and intended by God to, quote, live to righteousness? That's what Peter said in his first letter. So what does it look to live, like to live to righteousness? What does this godly life look like? And that's what Peter helps us in verses 5 through 11. He gives us eight or seven, depending on how you want to count it, characteristics or qualities of such a life. I want to move through them quickly just so you see them. First of all, it is a life of faith. This is actually something that you've been given, of course. Paul says, Peter says, rather, that believers have received this faith. Peter is assuming that the men and women to whom he's writing have this faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And everything that he's going to encourage us to 
these qualities, these activities, are in the context of faith. He's not adding work somehow apart from faith. In other words, from beginning to end, the Christian life is one of believing in and trusting in Jesus Christ. But first, it is a life of faith. And it's not a faith that was just a one-time, you know, yeah, I believed in Jesus at this event once upon a time, and, and since then you haven't really believed in him much or thought about him. It's a faith that is active, verse 5. Notice, in your faith, it's assumed to be present and active. Secondly, this kind of life, this life unto God, this life of righteousness is a life of moral excellence. I spent a lot of time on this last Sunday and emphasized, for example, the plague of pornography in our churches in our day and that how it is, it is unacceptable to be a professing Christian and to have that as a part of your ongoing life. It's not even close to keeping with moral excellence. So yes, Christians are to be characterized by, they are moral people. Their lives conform to the law of God. Not, not the Old Testament ceremonial laws, but the, the timeless moral laws that reflect the character of God and of Jesus. So God cares if we lie. God cares if we lust. God cares if we steal. And so on. This kind of life is a life of moral excellence, learning what is pleasing to God and pursuing it, not as some kind of badge of of, of standing, not not to gain salvation, but as a reflection of our love for God in Christ. Thirdly, it's a life of knowledge. Peter says, in your moral excellence, knowledge. He's not talking about just you know, knowledge of anything, although God gave you a a mind and he does want us to be people who are learning. And some of us have different minds and different abilities to learn, but we are to use our brains. But specifically here, Peter has in mind knowing God, knowing Jesus. Fourth, This kind of life is characterized, verse 6, by self-control. Self-control. It's self-explanatory. And it's not just in relation to what you eat or don't eat. That's what our culture is obsessed with, you know, our diets and so forth. And, you know, hey, there's a place for that. But really, I assure you, God's greatest concern with your life or mine is not what you eat. That's not the primary area where he's concerned about self-control. There's a lot of other areas that we can think of about self-control. It's fifthly a life of perseverance. Perseverance. It's, it's character. A Christian is someone who, who gives themselves to living for God, learning what's pleasing to him, and doesn't give up when the going gets tough. And it will. And Jesus was up front about that. He didn't say, like, take up your golf cart and follow me. Nothing wrong with a golf cart. But he said, take up your cross and follow me. He, 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 I love this about Jesus. 
He is so upfront about the cost of following him. He doesn't sell anything to anybody. He doesn't like tell you, oh yeah, your life is going to be so awesome. And oh, by the way, there's a few minor clauses down there that I didn't, I'll tell you about later. No, he tells anyone who would follow him up front, take up your cross and follow me. In other words, if you're going to live for me in this world, it's going to feel like sometimes like you're hanging on a cross. It's going to be hard. It's going to be painful. It's going to be fraught with tears. But this kind of person that lives a life of God perseveres like Jesus. Sixth, it's a life of godliness. It's a life of godliness. And I've, I've emphasized that word because I do think that is the word that best summarizes Peter's call in this whole letter. And, but godliness, what is it? We, we saw this the first week. It's one of those words that, you know, sounds good. I mean, who doesn't think that godliness is good? But if you actually stop and think, well, what, what does godliness mean? It's kind of one of those religious words that can kind of take on a turn, turn a, a, a tone of godliness. We can talk about godliness, but we don't really know what godliness is. And so it just becomes this mythical, um, unreachable existence. Godliness is to be characteristic of your average, ordinary Christian. What does it mean? It means a man or a woman redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ whose life, their thoughts, their mind, everything they do in every part of their life and their work, their family, their recreation, all of it has a bent towards God. It's lived towards God. I gave you that illustration, which I'm going to use again, of, of plants this time of year, maybe in your garden or your flowers they're going to reach towards the sunlight. And if you look at a man or a woman who's a true Christian, their thoughts, it doesn't take a lot for their thoughts to go to God, to go to Jesus in the nighttime before they go to bed, in the morning when they get up. Yeah, they think about their job, they think about what they do, they think about their wife, their spouse, their kids. Yeah, they, all that. It's, it's not wrong. But they think about God. They think about God's word. They think about how can I order my words, my thoughts, my life to please God. This is a godly life. Seventh, Peter says that this kind of life is a life of brotherly kindness, verse 7. In your, in your godliness, supply brotherly kindness. Eighth, this is a life of love, and in your brotherly kindness, love. So we've moved through the whole list there. In your faith, Supply moral excellence, in your moral excellence, knowledge, and in your knowledge, self-control, in your self-control, perseverance, and in your perseverance, godliness, and in your godliness, brotherly kindness, and in your brotherly kindness, love. It's quite a list. It's a list that Peter is pastorally using to try and help these believers that he loves remember what a Christian life looks like. And it is a list that doesn't necessarily build on one another. So if you're looking at it like, okay, first of all, I've got faith, and then I'm going to secondly work on moral excellence for a while. And then when I work on moral excellence for a while, I'll get around to knowledge. And once I got knowledge, no, it's not like that at all. It's, it's a list of of not one building upon each other, but really exemplary or characteristic of different facets of a Christian's life. So there's not a 
list. It's not, these don't build upon one another. But I do want you to notice for a few moments, I want to take a few moments to help you see that in this list, there is a noticeable trajectory or direction or bent. First of all, you start with faith because that's what salvation starts with. No faith, no salvation. No faith, you're not a Christian. Faith, Christianity, godliness starts with faith, believing the promise of God, and it continues with faith until we see Jesus with our resurrected eyes. But faith, then, a man or woman who knows they are a sinner, who hears in the Bible about Jesus and, and by faith sees him. I don't mean you see in your mind like a picture of Jesus. You, you Trust me, you don't. And if you think you do, when you see Christ in his resurrected glory power, you're going to think, wow, what I had in my head really didn't match up. So, no, you don't know exactly what he looks like, and I don't, no one does. We will one day. But nonetheless, by faith, we see Jesus. We see his character. We see his glory and excellence, verse 3, in the scriptures. That's why we spend so much time in church learning about Jesus. In the Gospel of Matthew, we spent a few years focusing on King Jesus. We just keep looking at him, looking at him, looking at him. And as we look at him and believe in him and learn about who he is, we are amazed at his glory. We are amazed at his holiness. And because we see that he lived and died for our sins, and because on the cross we see the cost of our sin. I mean, can you imagine standing next to the cross of Christ if, when he was still on it? He's no longer on it. But imagine standing with the blood of Jesus soaking that beam, dripping onto the ground, maybe splattering onto your feet. And then having the audacity to say, well, he died for my sins, so I guess he doesn't really care if I do this. Wouldn't cross your mind. I mean, I don't think it would be on the pale of possibility. And yet, this is how too many who profess Christ live. If you're looking at Jesus, if you're considering who he is, what he's done, you care about moral excellence. You, you look at Jesus, you love him, and you wonder at his love for you, and you see the penalty, the cost of your sin. And so you turn, as it were, from Jesus, and when you see your heart, your sin, and your, your, your tendency to sin, you hate it. You hate everything that displeases God. You hate every sin that Jesus had to die. You, you, you enter into a war with sin. You as a professing believer, you will not be done with sinning until you are raised with Christ in the last day. But until that day, you loathe sin. You don't want to do anything that displeases your Lord. So faith to moral excellence and because moral excellence desires to know what is pleasing to God, then this individual, this believer, wants to know God more. They want to know Jesus more. And there's a lot to know about God. It's a pretty big book. Um, I mean, you could read through it in a year, probably a couple of times through a year if you want to. But it's a big book. And the entire book is given by the Holy Spirit so that we might know God and know Jesus. There's a lot to know. Now, thankfully, God is a, is a wonderful teacher, and so a lot of it is, is repetition. He just tells us again and again, for example, about his faithfulness. 
But there's so much to learn about God. And a believer in Jesus Christ loves the verse Hosea 6.3. Tonight I'll be preaching in Hosea. We won't be looking at this passage, but this is a beautiful verse. Listen to Hosea chapter 6, verse 3. This is, this is the heartbeat of a true Christian. Quote, So let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. His going forth is as certain as the dawn. This is the attitude of a believer. Let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. And knowing the Lord, then, as we're looking at the trajectory of this list, knowing the Lord, then, we see that God is holy. He's not arbitrary. Uh, he, He is God. He is king. And so, then we then turn to ourselves, verse 6, and here's where a real battle ensues, because we live as sinners as though self is Lord. That's a joke, because everybody who thinks that they are their own master, they don't know it, but they're really a pawn of Satan, the Bible tells us. They're in the domain of darkness. No one is his, his or her own master. You think maybe you're your own life, but you're just pawn but when we are redeemed by Jesus Christ and brought into the kingdom self then because we know God because we love Christ our own self is then put on notice that there's a new there's a new Lord there's a new king and his name is not self his name is Jesus and in case you haven't noticed if you're a believer Your old self isn't too keen on that new arrangement. Your old self doesn't like being dethroned from ruling and determining your thoughts and your actions and what you do with your time and what you do with your resources. Your old self will not just surrender, it's a battle. And so for the Christian, there is a raging spiritual war within and without from the moment that you are born again and brought into union with Christ until you are with Jesus in in the end. Because we won't be done with this sin nature until we die or Jesus comes for us and we meet him in the clouds. It's a war. And that war then, that spiritual war, requires perseverance. I mean, for some of us, in our culture, we, the mantra of our culture is whatever your self, whatever whim, whatever fancy, whatever your self wishes, do it. Yield. And somehow that's authenticity. The Bible doesn't call that authenticity. The Bible calls that sin. Wickedness. We give in way too easily to ourselves. We need to talk more as Christians to ourselves. Some of you think that's a bad thing. You, say, you talk to my, you, you apologize. I've been talking to myself. No, it's actually a mark of godly biblical Christianity is that you talk to yourself because when yourself is is telling you that you should say something or do something, you know is contrary to Christ. You then are redeemed by Christ. You're able to talk to yourself, wait a minute, no. I want to remind you here who is Lord over this body, Lord over these eyes, Lord over this mouth, and self, it's not you. 
Jesus is Lord. And so sit down, self. Take a seat. Bow before the Lord Jesus Christ. All of us, all of us need to have those conversations from time to time with our self and deny our self. Deny. Say no to self. That is self-control. That is what self-control is. We are no longer ruled by self, but we, by God's grace, with the indwelling of the Spirit, rule over ourselves. And that takes perseverance. Resolute determination to press on through the discomfort. Yeah, it's discomforting. It's uncomfortable to follow Jesus. It's uncomfortable to change. It's uncomfortable to change our routines. Yes, it's, it's a disruption. It messes things up. It messes up our schedule. It maybe messes up some of our relationships. It, it can be a frustration as we stumble, as we try, and then we fail and we confess. It's fraught with failure, disappointment, and heartache. But the Christian, Peter says, perseveres through it all for Jesus' sake. And that is a Godward life. That is what is godliness. That's a life that's striving every day to live towards God, to live for God. And God is so kind. He sees that. Like a loving father with a little toddler who's just learning to walk. A loving father doesn't say to the little toddler, well, look at that, you fell down again. (laughs) I mean, what kind of evil father does that? I'm sure there's some out there. But God is a gentle, gracious father. He knows where you're at, believer. He knows what you came from, and he sees that you're striving to please him. And he'll receive that, however imperfect. He'll receive it. You can live a godly life. You can live towards him. You can know him and please him. But notice that this isn't just about you and God. Notice the trajectory again. The flow from faith through moral excellence, self-control, perseverance, godliness. It's not just going to stay with you. It's going to branch out and you're going to be mindful of others who know Jesus. A man or woman redeemed by the blood of Christ whose faith is fixed on Jesus is going to notice others who have also been redeemed. Others who have their faith fixed on Jesus. Others who are loved by Christ. And, And far from being harsh with others who follow Jesus and who stumble and who have quirks and maybe we disagree with, a true Christian is, is someone who loves brothers and sisters in Christ. Loves them. Even though they're different than you, men, women, different ages, different backgrounds, preferences, gifts, personalities, different levels of possessions and wealth, stages of maturity... Yeah, all these differences are in any true biblical local church. But, true Christian, godly man or woman, what you have in common with these other people, namely the grace of God in Jesus, means that you cannot think less than kindly about them and gently towards them. Why? Because your master has dealt kindly and gently with you. So how can you not deal kindly and gently with them? 
Your master, your king, your shepherd of your soul loves their soul too. Your master, your shepherd is not harsh with you, but kind. And you know that nothing pleases Jesus more than that you love his children, his flock, his sheep. And you do. Not maybe as much as you should, but you find yourself as you follow Jesus, loving men and women, fellow Christians, that you naturally would never have had anything connection with. But you find yourself loving them, um, thinking about them, praying for them, wanting to talk to them. Your lives are so different. Maybe your ages are different. Your interests are different. But what you have in common is so far greater that you love them. Because God is love and because Christ has loved you and because Jesus loves them. So no, this list, they are not lists, they are not steps that build upon one another, but there is a general direction to Peter's list. There's a logic you separate these things and, and you could have a pretty malformed, deformed Christian. You know, someone who just focuses on moral excellence and they're just mean to other Christians. You ever met that person? They're supposedly, you know, living for Jesus and really fastidious about what is pleasing to him. But if you're around them, you feel like, whoa, they, they're pretty nasty. <laughs> uh, not going to work. This, this Peter is under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, so wise in just giving a, a list that is a characterization of the qualities of a Christian life. And that trajectory starts with faith, looks at God, grows in knowledge, grows in self-control and moral excellence, and ends not with self but love towards others. Not even just brothers and sisters in Christ, but to those apart from Christ. This is the trajectory of a godly life. Now in verses 8 through 11, I want you to notice, we've, as we've looked at the qualities of a godly life, how serious this is. This is, this is not suggestive. This is not an optional course. Notice how Peter underscores the urgency of these things. By the authority and inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Peter asserts that whether we are diligently pursuing these things, like self-control and moral excellence and godliness and so forth, that list, whether or not we are pursuing these things leads to our being in one condition or another. He presents us with a set of either-ors. And it's very stark. And again, his, his heart is pastoral. He, he believes the best about the people he's writing to. He believes that they love the Lord Jesus, they've believed in him, but he's concerned that maybe they're slipping or, or maybe there's some among them that have just fallen away. So he begins in verse 8 with, he puts it in a positive light. If these qualities are yours and are increasing, they render you neither useless nor unfruitful in the true knowledge of Christ. 
if we possess these characteristics, and we're asking ourselves this morning, if I possess these things in increasing measure, the good news is that I won't be useless to Christ or God. I don't have to be afraid of, of not having any spiritual fruit. The, uh, the, the imagery there is having an offering to God, a gift to God. If I'm practicing these things, growing, I'm going to fall, I'm going to stumble, I'm going to confess, I'm going to get back. Remember, remember what Paul's, rather, Peter's word is up in verse 5, applying all diligence. Diligence means you stick at it. It infers that you're stumbling, that you're falling, and you just get back up. You just get back up. You just keep going at it. If that's characteristic of our lives, we need not fear being useless or having no fruit as an offering to please God. We can be comforted that we don't even maybe don't know how God's going to use us. I mean, maybe you're thinking, I'm not a preacher, I'm not a pastor, I'm not a missionary. I, I just have this is my job, or I work at home, or, or whatever I do. You don't have to worry that you will be useless. If you are doing these things in love to Jesus Christ, you will be useful for his kingdom, and maybe in ways that you could never anticipate or imagine. And one of the privileges I have as a pastor is the vantage point I have is, is I often can see uh, it's, not, it's just because of the privilege I have or the function I have as a shepherd of the sheep, is I get to see often sheep who maybe think they have nothing great to offer to the kingdom and the church. And I see how they're growing in sincere love and, and serving. And, and I can see how that little lamb or that sheep is being used in ways that he or she couldn't even imagine. It's wonderful to watch. And I can't wait until the last day when we're all standing before Christ and the surprise that there's going to be of some of the folks in church who love Jesus, who try to live a life pleasing to Jesus, but they think, you know, I don't have any great testimony or or great service for Christ. And one of the things I can't wait is how surprised they're going to be when God makes known what a life of pleasing offering they offered up to him. And they're going to be like, what? I, I, I did what? You, you lived for me. In the name of my son. At that workplace. You, you, you knew where I work? Yeah. Un, under that boss. Remember that one who was a real pain? Unreasonable? And I remember how you, you persevered under that. I can't tell you, son or daughter, how proud I am of you and how, how much pleasure that brought to me as you, you honored my son as you bore up under that injustice. What? I can't wait to see some of you shocked in the last day. But that's what it is. You, you don't have to be afraid. You don't have to go looking for some great service to Christ. You live like this. You are useful and you bear fruit unto God. But... That means, no matter how positive Peter is in verse 8, that means that if these qualities are not ours and increasing, we are useless. I mean, you do not say that in our culture these days. Uh, Some of you enjoy watching basketball, maybe. I've enjoyed 
Well, I didn't enjoy watching the Celtics, but 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 I, I've enjoyed watching some of those games. And 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 there's a commercial these these, these uh, this year in the NBA, and it says we're all in the finals. I mean, it's meant to be this kind of positive, like you know, we're all valuable, we're all winners. And I'm sitting there thinking, along with some others that have been watching with me, no, we're not. I mean, the Celtics aren't in the finals. I am not in the finals. I am not on the court. I should not be on the court. We are not all in the finals. We are not all winners. And listen, that's the culture we're in. We have to, we have to basically, our culture, we have to lie. <laughs> our culture has to lie. Oh, yes, you're not doing anything for Jesus or for God, but, but you're useful. No, Peter and the Holy Spirit, this is really, this is a shock for some of us. But if we are not doing these things, our lives are useless. I didn't say it. The Holy Spirit did. He put it positively first, but if these things are yours, your life is neither useful, but that clearly means that if these things are not ours, no matter how we profess faith in Christ, our life is useless, and we have nothing to offer up to God. We, there's a hymn, an old hymn, that says about salvation, nothing in my hands I bring, only to thy cross I cling. That should be true of salvation. That should not be true of a saved man or woman when we live for God. We should have an offering, fruit of righteousness, that we should bring and please God with. So, serious. This is very serious. I I don't want to be useless. You don't want to be useless to Christ. I don't want to have nothing to offer up to God for my life redeemed with the blood of his son. It gets more serious. Verse 9, Peter says, he who lacks these things is blind. I mean, again, that's not exactly um, very um, polite. It's just truth. Someone who professes Christ and doesn't have these qualities is blind or short-sighted and has forgotten his or her purification from her former sins. You're just blind. You think you see, but you don't really know who you are, and you have completely forgotten what you claim, that you were once dead and a sinner and guilty of sin against God, and that you were separated from God, and that you couldn't call upon him and pray to him, and he would hear you because your sins were a separation between you and him. You, didn't, you were headed at any moment to die and to stand before God and then one day to be resurrected to stand at judgment and to give an account for your deeds and to be cast into hell with the devil and the angels. And you say, believer, that the good news is that God so loved you that he sent his son, that he lived and died for you and took the punishment for your sins so that you escaped that. But you've just kind of forgotten and moved on. Oh, how we can do this, right? You've forgotten your purification. You cannot possibly understand the seriousness of your sin and the wonder of Jesus' death on the cross and continue to have a casual attitude towards sin. Blind, short-sighted, serious. Verse 10 it even has to do with uh, the certainty of our calling and our choosing. In other words, this has to do with our assurance of salvation. This is, this is consistent teaching throughout the entire New Testament. 
It's the mystery of assurance. It's, it's the mystery that God has called us by his grace. God chooses us. Yes, we hear the gospel. Yes, we respond. But salvation is all of grace. The Bible is clear that God chooses from, from, from before the foundation of the world those who will be his people. It's all of grace. It's not unjust of God. No one will be punished for sins that they have not committed. God is sovereign. We are responsible. But God in his mercy saves some. And Jesus calls some. He doesn't call all to himself. But, verse 10, the clear teaching of verse 10 is if, if, if these characteristics are not qualities, rather, are not characteristic of our life, we can't be certain about his calling and choosing of us. In other words, here's the mystery that as I give myself diligently to living a godly life, that it's as I practice these things that I am comforted that it's God who called me in the first place because I never would have come to faith in Jesus Christ and I wouldn't care about moral excellence and I wouldn't be able to exercise self-control and I certainly wouldn't have any thoughts about God unless God had called me and chose me. But I must diligently apply myself. Don't sit on the bench or just pop in once in a while in a service. The entirety of my life is an exercise in straining, striving in love and grace and godliness. And I can do this not because of what I am or what I have, but back to verse 3 because of who Jesus is. Again, I go back to what I said a few weeks ago. Some of us are so overly impressed with our sin. That's good. I mean, you should be horrified by your sin. But we need to be remembered that Jesus has never met a sinner that he can't handle. And there is never a sinner that he's come to and been like, whoa, I'm not sure. You're a mess. I'm not sure I can work with this. He's more powerful. He is sufficient. He can make you into a godly man or woman. Don't doubt it. That's who he is. And by looking at Christ by faith, as we strive to practice godliness, notice that there's a comfort here in verse 11. End of verse 10 and verse 11. As long as you practice these things, you'll never stumble. You just keep at it. you You do these things... You practice godliness. You don't worry. You're not going to stumble. And it's, this is the path of entrance into the eternal kingdom. Peter is not teaching salvation by works. No, it starts with faith. But the Bible is very clear that the faith that saves is an obedient, righteous faith. We are saved by faith alone, but the faith that saves in a Christian's life is never alone. It is accompanied by these qualities and the fruits of the Spirit. It's by this way, as we practice these things, verse 11, that entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior will be abundantly supplied to you. Notice it doesn't say barely supplied to you. (laughs) You'll, You'll just barely make it. No. You trust in Jesus Christ. 
You apply yourself diligently to faith, to moral excellence, to self-control, perseverance, godliness, brotherly kindness, love. And as you do so, entrance into the eternal kingdom of God will be abundantly supplied to you. You don't have to be afraid. Stay on the path. Let's pray. God, we are both comforted and discomforted by your word this morning. And you know everyone here. You know our lives. You know where we're at. You know those who have truly believed. You know those who have not. I pray that those among us who may be realizing right now that they really may not be saved. Because, quite honestly, their life has never been characterized by the qualities that Peter talks about. I pray, O oh God, even right now, that they will trust in the Lord Jesus Christ maybe for the first time with all their heart. Call upon you to be their Savior and determine that by your grace, today is going to be a new day, not of self-determination, but of reliance upon Christ pursuing these things. I pray for those among us, and perhaps this is many, where we've so emphasized maybe and been grateful for the gospel of grace and all we want to be and we sing about it and we're going to remember at the Lord's table in a moment. But we who have been believed maybe the lie of our heart or someone else that we don't have to really care anymore about godliness. We ask God that you'd forgive us We are brought up short this morning. We've been instructed clearly from your word. And so the call is clear, and we ask now, oh God, give in us what you call for. Help us today to reflect on our lives, our thoughts, our time, and determine by your grace that we are going to live to you, live for you. We thank you so much now that we can come to the Lord's table. We thank you that we can end this service by remembering that salvation is truly of grace, that you supply everything we need for salvation and godliness ultimately in Jesus, your Son. So in a few moments, as we eat this bread and drink this cup, may your people be refreshed. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.